Radio.org listeners, this is Lonnie Lowry. I am an exercise physiologist and uh, nutrition researcher and a former competitive bodybuilder. Hi, everyone. I'm Robert Fortress Fortney. I'm a journalist, editor, and um, former competitive bodybuilder and current strength athlete. And uh, I am Charles Staley. I am author of Muscle Logic, creator of Escalating Density Training, and I am a competitive weightlifter in the master's uh, category. Uh, I'm Phil Stevens. I'm a strength coach. I am a strongman competitor, national record-holding powerlifter, and founder of LiftForHope.org. And uh, guys, guess who we have here today? Sean Phillips. Sean Phillips, and I don't have quite that resume, man. That's, a, that's an impressive crew here. Everybody, except for Charles Fork, well, you got Phil, Powerlifter, um, Lonnie and Robert, both former bodybuilders, right? Yes. Yeah, they are. Cool, cool, yeah. But, Sean, you're the guy who has abs, man, so that's... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. None of us have abs like you do, so... And as a matter of fact, I mean, I've got this, like, uh, Sean, your your bio is, like, as long as my arm, and uh, but, but, you know, people... Ooh, I'm getting a little bit of an echo on, on my headset here. But, uh, Sean, I think most people know you from the old Muscle Media 2000 magazine. And uh, uh, also, most particularly, do you guys remember about 10 years ago, uh, Bill Phillips, uh, who's Sean's brother in, in Muscle Media, and they put out this uh, video called Body of Work. And that was just the, the, biggest, uh, the biggest hubbub and the biggest controversy when that first came out. Well, the guy on the cover of that with the 12-pack abs is, is Sean uh, Phillips, and uh, so we have Sean here today, and uh, Sean came uh, on late notice, so Sean, you're one of the good guys. Thanks for, thanks for hanging out with us today. Hey, it's great to be here, man. It's always a, any chance to talk to you, Charles, and I've been wanting to meet Phil, so and I get a chance to talk with Lonnie and Robert today, so it's awesome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks so much. And, you know, I know all these people... Um, Remember you back from the old muscle media days, and uh, I'm sure people are wondering what Sean uh, Phillips up to these days. And I know you've been very productive, and you have a new book out and a new uh, a new nutrition product. So can you kind of bring us up to up to date as to what you've been doing? Well, yeah, it's good. yeah. Um, see, we got we left DAS, Bill and I, in 2000, really about 2009. We closed out that. And then uh, I've been pretty much eating pizza and popcorn since then and hanging out. <laughs> Just kidding. Oh. <laughs> I, uh, shoveling I, snow, right? Yeah, shoveling snow, exactly. we got about 18 inches here. Um, so we we are buried up here in the mountains and uh, of Colorado. But, um, for the you know, what have I been doing since then, really? I mean, primarily I've uh, been doing that thing called life where you get into uh, going from your 30s into your 40s and growing up and dealing with... Uh, you know, uh, kids. I've got kids now. I've got another business. I got a wife. I got married. I got all those things. Yeah. So that takes a lot of time. And I'll tell you what. I know that you know we had about a ten-year run with EAS Muscle Media and um, early starting with Metrics Days and all those. And I say I'm sure glad I did those ten years when I was single. You know. <laughs> I bet, man. It's just uh, just uh, must have been an unbelievable experience. Yeah, I mean, it's great. I mean, it's great to have that. You know, I love, I like Muscle Media better, Muscle Media 2000, but it's still a, it's an icon, and I love getting on Facebook and meeting all the people that really started it with Muscle Media and that kind of thing, and it's, it's great to have had that influence, and, but really since then, you know, I've, I've continued to do, uh, pretty much the same thing. You know, I started a couple companies, uh, in the field, some knowledge bases and nutrition, um, 
Then I sold and dumped off a couple of those. And then about five years ago when I was getting married, I started a thing called Full Strength, which is really just high-performance nutrition for, you know, high-achieving men. And, it, you know, I, I took kind of everything I learned. I, you know, I, I go back to what Bill and I started with. We were always kind of like we did things that were in line with what we were doing. You know, it's like when we were, you know, I call it recovering bodybuilding. I was like we got into a whole natural supplement review and all about how to, do that and started in the metrics and then it was from bodybuilding it became you know body for life building kind of thing or body of work and that whole scene and then as you know as i get older and i'm more of an, a father executive driver you know time sensitive i said you know how do i take nutrition to to busy guys to help them stay fitter and stronger so i, I started the full strength nutrition for men i don't do nutrition for women and i don't I don't do a lot of other things. I don't do a bunch of supplements. I do that. And then last year, well, last year I finished and launched a book called Strength for Life, which, yeah. um, it, you know, how those things are. I call it finished it last year, and the two years before that, it completely consumed. Huh. And, you know, before we get too far, I just want to let people know, too, that your website, one of your several websites, but probably the easiest way to reach you is mystrengthforlife.com yeah. uh, from, the, from the title of the book. And so... So obviously, you know, you could sort of see a little takeoff from from body for life, but I, I sort of like the strength for life thing because now that implies, you know, something a little bit maybe more functional, and um, y you know, maybe even though you're known for abs, uh, y you know, this uh, sort of connotes um, something that maybe for a lot of people might seem a little bit more meaningful for that. So what's what's kind of the what's the gist of strength for life? Like what what's what's the the short, uh, the, the short notes for uh, strength for life. You know, and you're, you're, it's really about the word strength. I mean, ideally, you know, candidly, I wouldn't have called it strength for life because it puts it in alignment with body for life and makes it look like a second coming. And now that's not to say I didn't embrace the principles of body for life. Sure. I understand that I have to embrace the people and take them to the next level. So there is a lot of next level approach to it. There's a lot of learning and wisdom. But the, the main feature for me was really the conversation about strength because I think, you know, muscle is one thing, but strength is something else. And I define strength, and I spend the whole, really the first chapter of the book, I talk a lot about the whole piece of what strength is. And to me, strength is a way of being. It's an abundance. It's an inside-out kind of capacity of, you know, I say an abundance of energy, physical, mental, spiritual, emotional. It's having a reserve. And, you know, I talk a lot about the whole issue with health. I think that predominantly people in America – most Americans actually define health as an absence of disease, not the presence of anything. And, you know, <laughs> That's so true. You know, it's, it's the way Webster's defines it. And literally, most people take no action to do anything about their health until they've lost it. Yeah, it's a very reactive uh, type yes. of, of, of scenario and a reactive type of market. And You know, what's kind of cool about that, though, is that, you know, strength has a physiological definition uh, a lot of us are strength athletes, and it, it's the ability to produce a maximal effort against a load or whatever. But, you know, in a wider scope, um, I would, you know, I've always thought of strength as your ability to sort of impact your world or, or your environment or your surroundings. It's your ability to be productive and to, to do what you need to do. And uh, does that fall in line with, uh, oh, there we go. Uh, does that fall in line with what you're talking about in the book? Uh, absolutely, Charles. You, you nailed it, actually. It's, I, I... I have the the line in there is it's a capacity or reserve to make an impact in your world literally and um I think I li I I liken health for most people as living paycheck to paycheck having enough that I'm not in debt but I have no abundance and when we talk about making impact or contributing to others or leading others or sharing the strength it's like you've got to have reserve to do that 
You know, we look, we look to the people that have extra to give us some. We look to the people to lead us. But if you want to impact others, if you want to coach people, you want to lead people, you want to inspire people, do you not need a reserve? Or are you just functionally surviving? And it's from lifting from survival to, to really thriving or abundance. So if you go back to that whole, you know, the growing abundance mentality and awareness about having more than enough, to me that, that is embodying strength as a way of being. You know what? I love that. I love the word reserve that you're using because I'm thinking back to back in the early 90s when I was doing a lot of work for the International Sports Sciences Association, which is one of the biggest uh, fitness certification agencies out there. And, you know, their definition of fitness that I had a, a small hand in, in, in sort of coining was having the ability to get through the needs of your everyday life with a little left in reserve uh, for life's little emergencies. So uh, that seems to fall in line with, with, with that. And I always just thought that, that you know, uh, that, that's such an important distinction. And, and it's amazing what, you know, the average doctor in the United States today would call healthy. Uh, I mean, I've seen people, uh, for example, my, um, I, I have a relative who is a, is a chain smoker, actually. And I remember about four months ago, she uh, got back from the doctor and, and the doctor said, yep, I'm perfectly healthy. <laughs> and what the doctor meant was she just doesn't have lung cancer yet. But, uh, you know, it's, it's frustrating, huh? Well, and that's, I mean, that's exactly it. I've got a line in the book where I said, you know, you could be 80 pounds overweight snacking on ding-dongs and ho-hos as you stroll through Walmart and, you know, all systems check in as healthy, you know, because I don't have cancer, because I have no broken bones. Yeah. That's the definition of the absence of disease. Yeah. As long as I don't have an illness which defines me as unhealthy, I'm defined as healthy. And it's goal-setting machines that human beings are. If my goal, consciously or unconsciously, is to be free from disease, then what am I doing? I'm, I'm saying, really, it's like operating your life on the, the financial goal of being not being bankrupt. <laughs> great, great parallel, and uh, that that puts it all in perspective. You know, like despite that, though, Sean, like I'm reading on your website, um, mystrengthforlife.com, and you're saying that discipline, and I sort of like this because I, by instinctively, I'm kind of like a contrarian kind of thinker. Yeah. But you say that discipline is not a success strategy for fitness, and so. That now sounds kind of contradictory to everything you've just been saying. So I think I know what you're up to with that, but what does that mean? Well, and, and you know, the contradictory, I mean, I, I like to disrupt. I'm very disruptive about the perspective of health because people need to wake up. The the discipline piece is most people say, well, I don't have the discipline to stick with, you know, to this, or I can't make that. Well, you, you know, you, it's like say, it's like putting a pistol to your head to get you to do something. Discipline is is a short term strategy. You're only going to hold discipline for so long. How do you convert discipline into habits, rituals, and motivation? Because motivation is an inner energy to inspire, and it's like motivation isn't that kind of raw raw stuff that people get into. But motivation is a structural. It's kind of I look at it is about creating a lifestyle, and I say, I say, you know, discipline is going to get you so far feedback loops appreciation energizing and if you look at a lifestyle look at the three legs of a lifestyle i say structure is where you begin with um uh structure skills you got to have basic skills and motivation any one of those legs missing you're stuck Mm -hmm. you know motivation in the absence of skills is meaningless you know skills in the absence of motivation are dormant um motive you know structure with no motivation you know you can see that all those come together so you know the people that say they need discipline you know i mean they're looking for somebody to do it for them hmm. that's uh I, I i sense my colleagues wanting to jump in here but but let me just say one more thing on that and i've always had people in my life tell me how disciplined i am because i'm you know always in the weight room and lifting heavy and i never thought i was disciplined at all i just like it you know i've just learned to enjoy the process isn't that the huge difference you when you like it 
discipline is not necessary. Well, and that's a great, you're making a great distinction. Who was that that brought that up? That was, well, first me and then Lonnie. Yeah, I got you, Charles. Lonnie, thanks, Lonnie. But, and, and just to your point, I mean, one of the stories I often tell is that, you know, I mean, and you all have been there. It's like I've been eating a certain way and training a certain way, but, I, you know, I eat and I see food as, as what they are, carbohydrates, proteins, you know, phytonutrients. I see it for that first and primarily. So when I go out to lunch with, with you know, pretty normal, average, active people, they always look at me and go, how do you eat so disciplined? And I look at them, what do you mean, disciplined? I don't, I don't understand. I mean, there's no discipline eating foods that are good for me. Yeah. Yep. Yep. You know, I mean, what's what's the discipline? How how are you so disciplined to drink water when you're thirsty? <laughs> right. And yeah. and you know what? Because people's tastes are learned, they're not just born. I mean, you can find some weird gender differences and preferences of foods and stuff like that, but you can actually untrain your palate, you know, get away from uh, a desire for sickly sweet beverages and things like that. And healthy foods, you can not only learn to appreciate them, but actually enjoy them. Like, I like the taste of tea by itself. You know, no sweeteners, no nothing. I just like my tea now. And I just got away from putting two packets of sweetener in there to one packet to half a packet, you know, and maybe there's a weaning process a little. But you really can train your palate, you know, and actually enjoy healthy food. Well, I, have to, I have to laugh right now. I'm, I'm chuckling because I'm sitting here drinking an E-T-O-N, um, a, China, a Japanese tea. If you've ever seen it, it's a premium tea from Japan, and it's just so amazing. I'm drinking green, white, pure, nothing, zero, you know, just plain tea, and that's what I drink. I drink plain tea all the time. I drink black, black straight coffee, Americanos usually, and plain tea. Same way, because I just, you know, who can handle it, you know? But it is it is a conditioning. You've been conditioned to assume certain things. I mean, how long since anybody on this phone's had a Twinkie? Yeah. No, nobody's going to own up to this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but your point, your point, your point is well made, and uh, yeah. Um, I I remember when um, uh, I had my my half sister over here last year uh, uh, visiting, and I made her a protein shake, and uh, she goes, "Oh, that has such a has such a funny aftertaste, and uh, I, I'm not going to mention the brand, but trust me, there was no aftertaste. This particular shake is like having, like you know, an ice cream shake, and uh, it just goes to show that you know there is that that weaning process. I think, and um, for me, you know, having a protein shake is uh, just an everyday thing. So, well, further, I, uh, I was going to say further to what Lonnie was saying. I mean, all, all one needs to do is kind of do the traditional preparations for a bodybuilding competition. And you, you fuck. Thanks, Phil. And you find and you find like the last usually the last three four weeks that if you do are doing a traditional you know twelve fourteen sixteen week kind of run in that that last few weeks you actually don't miss any more of those kind of um, sweets or anything that would be considered a dessert or a a junk food you actually don't even miss it because you can't can't remember even what it was so yeah. you know, so further to what Lonnie's saying yeah I mean it's it's a learned thing I think and you can definitely unlearn it well I think it's also a very mature look at food, and the, the society as a whole puts too much power in food, in, in my opinion, and they let it control them instead of realizing that, you know, they're in control. You know, food is seen as such a social event, and people, you know, well, how, how can you stay disciplined? I, I have to give in the cravings. Well, no, you don't. I mean, that's, you know, you're not a crack addict. It's food. You, you just <laughs> say no. You know, I mean, it's not actually addictive, and I mean, I like also saying that there's no real, that there are very few bad foods. There's yeah. just foods that are bad for goals. 
You know, I mean, with the exception of maybe high fructose corn syrup and trans fats. Yeah. Other than that, you know, it's bad amount. It fits your goals. Yeah. 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 You know, what I want to throw in on, on, on what we're just talking about now is that, that that transition to that adult view on food is really the, it's the classic subject-to-object maneuver, right? It's like, it's like from swimming in the ocean to sea in the water, you know? I mean, if you, if you live in that subject world, you are... You, you don't even realize when you're eating food. I mean, how many people do you know? I mean, we all know somebody who eats food that doesn't even know they're eating it. That's yeah. true, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's such a compulsive behavior. They've not separated. And, and there is no freedom in that. They have no freedom. They're completely driven by desires, and they can't, they can't squeeze that little gap in there. But the smallest little gap to create that distance, I mean, simply pausing before you eat something. I have a uh, practice, and I'll, I'll, you guys love to check it out in the book sometimes, it's called 15 First Bites. And I ask a person to get their favorite dessert, and I ask them to go through a process of, of not eating it intentionally for three nights. And on the fourth night, I want them to eat that dessert. But I want them to have the first bite 15 times. <laughs> and I will tell, it's, it's amazing. People, I mean, you know, if you think about it, people will go, but then you probably wouldn't finish it, would you? No, you, you wouldn't. You'd realize how intense the food is because most people go unconscious after the first bite and they consume unconsciously. If you taste how sweet, sweet and rich that dessert is, you'll get sick of it by the fifth or sixth bite. You know what, Sean? That is such a great, and, and Phil, I know you're like about to perk up here because Phil and I were having this exact discussion four or five days ago, and Phil brought up the point that, you know, if you're eating a bowl of ice cream, you know, 99% of the, the payoff in terms of taste or entertainment or whatever you want to call it is the first couple of bites, and then from that point on, you're just wrecking yourself. So that is such a great, you know, it really is true. And if you really think about it, uh, after a couple of bites, you do just kind of go numb to it. And now you're just now you're just getting all the uh, the drawback without any additional benefit, and uh, that's a great exercise. It's especially true with ice cream because of the numbing effect it has. But Sean's point's well taken. People don't they don't uh, focus on the present moment, you know, and enjoy those first bites or each bite like it was the first bite. It, after a few bites, you kind of just go into consumption mode. There was some research that came out last year, and I don't remember the author. I, I apologize, but they were actually talking about how there's something attractive about sheer calorie consumption and how the taste and and the pleasure and all of that is a focus of the first few bites. But people will continue, and I think we can all identify with there's there's times where you or someone you knew would sit down and you'd annihilate like a whole bag of corn chips or something, and you know, and there it is, you know. So there's something attractive, probably evolutionarily, about just keeping the calories coming, and yet after a few bites, like we're all saying, it, it, there's not a whole lot of uh, uh, pleasure and focus left. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I teach something in the book, and I'm really big on the distinctions, and Charles, you probably get that a lot too. It's like I, you know, I really like to, to I graph things out a lot, and I give people a lot of visuals so they can see things. One of the things I, I have a concept I call the cravings to consumption to freedom, and it's and I show a kind of timeline. I say most people's relationship from, with food is from the time they have a craving to when they consume something, and when they shut it up, they treat their appetite like a crazy ant in the basement. They just want it to go away, you know, but they have no cause and effect relationship. So from the time they eat food for the next one, two, or three hours, how that food impacts them is completely unknown. They have no idea. But the minute you can shift your focus, even the slightest focus, from my craving to how food impacts me, you have now strengthened your feedback loop and you will effortlessly begin to eat foods that are better for you. Because you'll say to yourself, well, I understand when I eat this hamburger, I sleep for two hours in the afternoon. I don't get any work done and it costs me my entire day. Wow. 
What a great distinction. We're talking with Sean Phillips uh, from MyStrengthForLife.com. Uh, that's named after his book. That's about, I believe, a year old called Strength for Life. And what I like about this, Sean, is that this is this is something that I think, regardless of who you are or what your goals are, these are just great lessons that, that can be applied. This is really about awareness and about habits. And uh, I, I think most people need... Um, to, to kind of reinvestigate that that area of their of their process for sure. Well, Can I add one last thing? Yeah, I, go ahead. Before we change over to the the topic, um, I'm looking at. I was thinking about this last week, and as as Sean was talking, and, and you too, Charles, in the beginning, about how people don't act until they have severe problems. I'm holding in my hands right now a consumer health textbook from the 80s. Now this is old stuff, but it's it's very interesting that how. Uh, how much it backs up exactly what you're saying. I mean, listen to some of this stuff. This says uh, only 20% of patients with minor symptoms will actually act on healthcare issues such as consulting a physician. And then uh, later it says people tend to act in the following four situations. One is if their symptoms are severe. Two, if they're persistent. Three, if it's repeated. And four, if they have serious doubt about their current condition. So, I mean, it just totally backs up what you're saying. I think it's very, very interesting that, you know, there it is in black and white. That's um, a book called Consumer Health from uh, Cornetia and Barrett. That's an old 1989 copy. But, you know, a, a lot of those things, as Charles was pointing out, are kind of human truths. And, uh, yeah, people don't seem to want to uh, act from some, you know, develop this momentum and this motivation. Instead, it's things have to be severe and persistent and cause doubt about their very life before they actually move. Yeah, I mean, that's really it. And I think, you know, I think one of the keys to shifting that and one of the things I teach in Strength for Life throughout the whole book, and it's really my whole philosophical approach to fitness in life, it's all really about an awareness practice. I bring a lot of that Eastern awareness into it. I, I actually had the heart of Strength for Life, and I don't know if, Charles, if you've I shared this with you or not yet, but I, I created a practice I've been teaching for about seven years, which is kind of a, it's a, it's an active meditation form of strength training, which brings a, kind of integration of some of the martial arts practices with a little bit of the yoga mindfulness into a very Western strength training approach. It's not, um, the core of the practice is, is only moderately functional. I have a full functional day, and most of it's very traditional because it's the audience I'm kind of dealing with. Sure. But um, I bring it into that, you know, how do you create an active meditation and spend less time training and more time with the quality aspect and, and engaging your mind? Because I really feel most people treat exercise as something they don't want to do, and so mm-hmm. it's kind of a resistance, not a, not a commitment. So they're not engaged, but just but detached, staring at a TV or talking or jabbering, you know. No? Mm-hmm. Such a great, so true, so true. That's that's the difference between, as I always say, being an exerciser and being an athlete. And uh, that's a great. I love that tagline. Very, very, uh, very well said. Well, Sean, you're awesome for hanging out with us today. Can can you stay for a discussion topic, or do you need to take off? Yeah, love to, love awesome. to. Awesome. Here you guys go, man. Bill, you want to send me off here? So uh, this week's uh, topic, uh, which is kind of a follow-up to my article in last week's newsletter, uh, and that is, do you have a protocol? And uh, it, it's sort of, uh, well, you know, I think most people uh, have have protocols in their lives, but what we want to 
kind of discussed today is do you have a protocol involving how you handle physical activity and recovery from that activity and injuries and nutrition and, and all of those things. So, so just to, to kind of kick this off, in terms of definition, a protocol really is a procedure. Basically, um, it's a system. And in fact, I think the words protocol and, uh, and system are, are fairly synonymous. But my question for everyone listening in today is, you know, do you have a system for your training and your nutrition? And do you have a system for how you integrate those components into the rest of your life? And I've, I've often written and spoken about how a lot of times it's not your training or nutrition, but kind of how, how you fit those in against the uh, context of, of the rest of your life. So, you know, as you go into this kind of a topic, I think it's worth trying to distinguish which things in your life should be systemized or systematized and, and which ones shouldn't. And my take on that question is that there are two types of events or activities that should be systematized. And those two things are things that are important and things that matter, things that are meaningful, and also things that you do frequently. So by that definition, if we consider training and nutrition, uh, those are both things that happen frequently and things that we, by definition of listening in here today, we, we think that, that those things are uh, important as well. So. Now, um, another sort of question when you discuss this is, you know, why should you systematize anything? I mean, it's kind of reasonable to think, well, hey, man, I just want to, I want to go with the flow, you know, I don't want to be bogged down by systems. It kind of constrains my creativity and, and all of that. But, you know, if you realize it or not, the purpose of systems, from my perspective at least, is to free you from having to kind of reinvent the wheel every time a new situation arises. So, just as an example, and I'll, I'll let you guys chime in here, but anybody here have a system? Let's say you have a book that you need to bring to the office tomorrow. Anybody here have a system as to how they're going to remember that? What would you do? Well, often it's just a physical thing of taking the book and maybe putting it at the front of the door. Right? Yeah, yes. Yeah. Any, uh, you guys are all jiving on that? I mean, that's exactly what my system would be. And yeah. that's a system that is unconscious for most people. But, yeah, that is – and, and the reason that that works – as a system, is because, um, you know, it, it, if you basically, it's, it's, it's an external uh, thing that you can trust, and, and you can, it will act upon you, and you can trust it more than you can trust yourself. Okay. And does that make sense? So I think all of us in our work lives, we have systems. I mean, everybody has systems as to when they work and, and how they work and uh, how they handle voicemail and email. And I'm a big fan, Sean, I'm sure you are too, I'm a big fan of personal productivity systems. And I just gobble that stuff up. And there's everything from uh, Getting Things Done by David Allen, yeah. uh, which, by the way, that's where that leaving in front of the door, he uses that analogy all the time. So I think it's worth sort of reevaluating for everybody listening out there, you know, what is your system for handling uh, how, you, how you train? And, and, and that could involve anything from the frequency of, of, of training to uh, sets and reps to the exercises you choose. And uh, what, do you have a warm-up system? Do you have, do you do sort of like, do you uh, use a, a foam roller and then do some dynamic stretching before and static stretching after? Uh, you know, uh, do, do you have, uh, do you go by the, the golden hour that your workout has to be an hour long? Uh, and, uh, if you don't have that system, I think it's worth putting some, some time and thought into. And, um, if you've never thought about it, I think it's worth just examining kind of the way that you, you go through those things and, 
and, and see what elements of that system are working for you and maybe what elements of that system need revising. And, uh, and that's why all of us can make a, a living writing books and creating training systems. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, really, I mean, Charles, i got to pipe in real quick. Is, is, uh, as you're speaking, I'm thinking to myself, uh, I don't think I've ever achieved anything significant without the, the freedom of the structure of a system. Right? I mean, isn't that the whole point of a system that it, 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 you take repetitive and rote and activities that can be relegated to a rote way of, of being handled so that now you can kind of rise above all that and really exercise your, your unique ability and your, your true creativity? I think that, that a seminar we went to yesterday kind of played into this, and it's, you know, people see systems as tying them down or restricting them, and when actually, you know, it's the over-practice that actually frees you up because then it becomes automatic. And then you are actually able to react because your core, your template of your training or your nutrition, your your backbone, your foundation is there. So then you're able to try different things. You're you're more free. You have free time to, to actually do instead of think. Yep, yep. And, and you know, I, I don't know uh, what everyone else's involvement or interest in systems is, but I first became really, really interested in this subject when I took a, a business development course from a company called E-Myth International. And that whole, that whole system <laughs> was based on teaching you systems. And uh, one of their little things was the, the way you know you need a system for something is whenever you're saying, how come it always happens? You know, how come I'm always dealing with shipping issues? Or how come uh, so-and-so is always doing X, Y, Z? And, 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 and that's, a, that's kind of a reminder that you have this problem that's surfacing in your life repetitively. And the reason that it keeps resurfacing is because you don't have a system for it. And every time it resurfaces, you have to reinvent the wheel again to, to kind of handle it. You know, if, if I can chime in here for a second, I think one of the things that really got me interested in having a, a system was uh, my own kind of self-abusive training system and the way that coaches treated me and I treated myself for a, a very long time. And that was apply the stimulus, apply the stimulus, apply the stimulus, you know, constant intensity and volume. And there wasn't a lot of things like periodization involved. There was no real plan for the recovery part. And then I, I really got turned on to it by some work by uh, some European researchers, Ken Ta and another one, Kelman. And Kelman, he actually wrote a book called Enhancing Recovery. I think it was from Human Kinetics Publishers, but the whole purpose was you have to have a system for each amount of intensity that you pour into your training. And it might be as simple as something as like a, you know, a Borg scale of perceived exertion. You know, my training was a 20 today out of 20 possible. And the whole idea is you have to put back an equal number of points through, you know, you get points for eating meals and snacks. You get points for sleeping, for doing the stretching or the roller work like Charles was talking about. And, and if, if I was treating myself like a bad businessman because I kept spending my resources in literally into bankruptcy, you know, into overtraining, and there was never that recovery part of the system. And when you start to add some quantification to it and you plan it, you know, then you can go ahead and unleash the intensity because you're addressing, uh, you, you know, the bottom line. You're not going into the red. Yep. Love it. And I had forgotten about that uh, yeah. about that system you just mentioned, and that was a good one, Lonnie. We should uh, let's get that on the new, on the newsletter uh, pretty soon. I, I would like to revisit that. Actually, I've got 
I've actually got an Excel file that people are welcome to look at, and um, I'll have to delete out some of it. I actually used it the last time I competed to keep myself from catastrophic, <laughs> you know, overtraining failure. And uh, but it's actually something that people can play with, and it, it's a daily process. And it's like the the book by the front door too, because it got me sitting in front of my computer and just plotting out how hard did I train today, and then how did I address that with the eating and the psych and the sleep and everything else. You know, it really brought it all together. So I did that for a, like a 24 week uh, diet and you know pre contest cycle, and it, that structure completely saved me and I, and I actually did pretty well when I competed. So yeah, I, maybe we can even offer the spreadsheet. That'd be cool. Dan, Dan John does it. He explains pretty much the same thing. Very interesting with his whole, um, you know, the harder you work, the harder you have to rest. You know, it has to be in balance, your rest, your play, your prey, your recovery, all that. You know, the harder you do one thing, the harder you work, the harder you need to recover and play. And, you know, all those things have to be in balance or just like the body, you're going to get out of whack. and Something's going to go wrong. Hey, can I ask a question to everybody here? I've, when I heard about today's topic, and I really want to learn as much as I can from all you guys on this, but when it comes to training systems and protocols, what's your take on training to failure? Uh, because you hear different things about this, and I'm, I'm looking at an abstract in front of me right now. Um, it's from Willardson. It's a 2007 paper in JSCR. Uh, and they're talking about how advanced lifters should probably consider training to failure, at least occasionally. But I wanted to get your take on some of these things, because I know there's a lot of neural recovery and other things involved. But what do you guys think about training to failure day in and day out? Well, I always look at failure as being something where you have positive failure and negative failure. And negative failure would be, you know, um, implementing things like, you know, uh, advanced training, things like force reps and so forth. And I think those things should be used very, very sparingly. Um, I think more often than not, um, the average trainer should try and think in terms of training to positive failure, which means only succeeding um, with a set to the point where you can complete that set without the aid of somebody else, a spotter, or so forth. I think from a strength athlete point of view, it's best probably to, to terminate a set two or three reps before you even reach positive failure, in my opinion, so you actually almost train the body, train the nervous system, train the muscles to never, to never fail. That's hard to do, though, don't you think? Um, I mean, behaviorally? Absolutely, I do. I mean, because I think that's one of the, in, in my way of looking, it's one of the defining differences between um, being a bodybuilder, that is, you know, uh, training predominantly for just the accumulation of muscle versus being a strength, a pure strength athlete, uh, where the, the accumulation of muscle is just a byproduct of what you're doing, is that a bodybuilder almost, from, my, from what I've seen, almost has to go to a certain degree of positive failure, at least. Um, at least a, a part of the time and probably a majority of the time, um, which kind of feeds into the whole idea of volume training and that type of thing, which I think is you know the whole pump pump it up kind of thing, which I, I think is necessary. Um, but again, to be um, to maximize strength and the strength and power development, I think I think that actually sometimes really shoot, would shoot the athlete in the foot. Whereas you do have to kind of weigh in that um, that discipline, so you actually are terminating sets. Um, early, at least it would be early in, in the Western idea of hypertrophy training and so forth. Sean, jump in on that. 
Um, well, I really liked and appreciate the training to positive failure, which, I, you know, I do promote that on occasion, you know, targeted for an individual set because of the frequency I put in. You know, if you go back in, um, and I like the distinction between that and the negative failure, which I, I, I totally agree with intermittently, sparingly. Um, I go back to the whole system and structure. I mean, you know, I started designing computer strength training programs in 1989 to date myself, and mm-hmm. I spent the first eight years of my, you know, fitness life breaking down every every load on the muscle and the total body so i'm a big balance of recovery person and on the systems i mean i i i'm so big on the recovery piece that i actually have a 12 day i call it a system reboot i put into strength for life which is because i believe most people and these aren't strength athletes most people coming from any kind of moderate level fitness who go to engage in in what might be a classic body for life or intense transformation program aren't actually prepared for that because their system's already in an energy debt and exhaustion so i say if you can't get yourself structurally sound how can you begin to get fit Sean, I freaking love that, and I can't believe you you used the word system reboot because I've got a shoulder and a knee issue that I've been dealing with now for, for weeks and weeks. And uh, last night I said, you know what, man, I'm just going to do like a reset. <laughs> and uh, your term is slightly better, but same idea. Like sometimes, man, you just got to dial back and just let things catch up, you know. Well, so, uh, what happens is I don't think – we've all had the experience of not knowing how slow our computer or our PC is running. I won't blame Mac for that. Oh, that's what I use these days. But you don't know how slow your PC is running until you reboot the thing, and you're like, man, that thing wasn't running at all. Isn't that a great, but, great – analogy. Yeah, that's the way our bodies get. Our bodies get to this point where we don't even understand how sluggish we are until someone looks at it and says, man, you look like you're moving in slow motion. See, if you're listening in, this is why you need to buy Strength for Life, because Sean is a smart dude, and that is a very, very uh, astute insight, and so um, that that's pretty cool. You know, and let me throw in a, a, just a dab of research. Last week, we were talking about um, throwers and shot putters, and I put uh, an abstract up with Phil uh, on the Staley forums in the show discussion. It was from Terzis et al. It was a 2008 paper in the Journal of Strength Conditioning Research, and it backs up what you're saying right now, that basically after 14 weeks of constant weight training, these guys were hypertrophying, but their percent of fast-twitch fibers were actually decreasing toward the end because of the monotony, presumably, and after a four-week reboot – they actually had a 32% rebound in fast twitch percentage, and, you know, there you go, reboot. Yeah, yeah. Good, good, I, I've got to weigh in on this because uh, it's just an interesting topic and one that's close to my mind, and I have, I think, some, some uh, interesting ideas here, just unique thoughts. As a strength athlete, one of the things I've noticed uh, with training to failure and is as a beginner, I almost advocate it more. As, a, as not a beginner, but a uh, an early advanced trainer, I guess, I suppose, for lack of a better term, um, due to the fact that I don't believe they know what failure is. It's yeah. more they're going to perceive failure. They're actually mentally weak, not physically weak. Yeah. They're not able to exert themselves to the point of failure. So their actual failure is, is a perceived failure. It's like, oh, this is getting hard. They quit. You know, I failed. No, no, you didn't. They haven't yeah. learned how to push themselves. Sure, sure. Whereas me and you guys as as more advanced trainers, I mean, I can't handle failure that often. You know, me going in and pulling a one-rep 700-pound deadlift, you know, that's it. I'm done. You know, and i got to know how to walk away. Whereas somebody else going in there and deadlifting 150 pounds and failing on rep three, it's like, no, you get a lot more in you. Yeah. 
you need to learn how to use that. That's a great distinction, Phil. There's a difference, and it, it's something you learn. I heard Charles kind of uh, responding to that, that a little bit. There's a learning curve, and advanced trainers can start to get this kind of subjective nuance that, you know, when do I engage a certain amount of discipline, like during a set, you know, oh, it's getting hard, good, bring it, you know, versus um, I'm something in my body is telling me back off, back off now. You know, and if so, you have to actually have that distinction between when to apply your mental prowess versus when to, you know, listen to your body and and actually back off a little. Boy, now exactly. we now we have two topics of of the week, but you know that's okay. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, early on, I'll chirp in on this, and then we'll 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 get kind of wrapped up here in a minute. But people kind of know my take on training to failure. But I would say. Uh, this and I'll just leave this little pearl with everyone that if if I was uh, if I was constrained to doing one set I would for sure go to failure. Uh, however, you don't have to limit yourself to one set, and uh, I think it's much more important what you accomplish in a in a session as opposed to just a single set. Um, we're not even if you're time starved, you don't have to do a single set. So that would be uh, my take on that. So. Uh, well, guys, great discussion. And, Sean, before we finish up, I just want to see if there's anything else we should bring up or maybe more specifically uh, anything coming down the pike with you that we should know about in terms of websites or product offerings or uh, media appearances or anything going on like that. You know, uh, I appreciate it. Nothing really. I mean, really, I'm always out there, uh, you know, uh Pitching the book and sharing it, and I think it's a philosoph- you know philosophy in there that you know everybody who picks it up resonates with it, and you know really tells the story and they get they get it, especially the experienced, even the even the entry level, they get the whole idea that this is about something more than just living at a at a state of mediocrity, you know, and that's that's my call. And you know anybody out there, you know, I mean I, I I've got my full strength nutrition shake. I don't do a lot of other supplements. You know, I do see that there may be some need at some point to get back in that sector, but I right. Now I think it's just such a confusing place to be. I don't want to be in it right now. So, mm-hmm. you know, and I appreciate this call. It was really fun, and uh, um, it was great talking with you guys. Uh, thanks for having me on, Charles. Yeah, Sean, that was very generous of you, and uh, uh, just uh, great that guys like you will come on and, and share your expertise and your time with us. So, thank you, everybody. Great show, and uh, we will see you next week. Thanks, Sean. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me, Sean. All right. Thank you, man. Bye, bye. The Iron Radio Podcast. All of the audio on ironradio.org is for information purposes. If you're interested in starting a diet or an exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists 